good to see you guys again. I'm just curious, how many of you were here um, when I was here last two years ago? Okay, good. Uh, the uh, program tonight's going to be uh, almost all different, although the Biblical Studies Department did insist I do a couple of the tricks again, and uh, some of you have been asking about that. But uh, uh, to kind of get us started this morning, I've got a paper ball. I'm going to toss it over my head. Uh, let's say the female who catches it or lands closest to it, I want her to immediately stand, okay? Is that all right? I'm going to toss it over my head in this area here. And the female who catches it or who it lands closest to, she'll immediately stand up. Now, now let me ask you something. Uh, what, is, what is your name? You have a lot of fans here. I can tell that. Uh, Joy, uh, do you like to have some sort of, con- at least a little bit of control over your life? A little bit? Pardon me? You'll be honest, right? Uh, whether it's uh, the food we eat or the, how much weight we, you know, uh, carry with us or don't carry with us or however that thing works out. Uh, one of the things that most people would at least like to be able to do today, real practically, is to uh, control the quality of the food that you eat and how much you eat. I remember when I was in college, the big deal for me was to eat real potatoes that were not instant. Uh, when I got married, that was the big deal. Was my wife would make me some real mashed potatoes. My mother-in-law said, you're going to be easy to please, Dan. Now, we're going to have, we have a, a bunch of grocery bags up here, you know, numbered one through five. Now, when you go to buy bakery goods, I love bakery goods. And uh, you generally take a number, right? You have to wait in line. A lot of people hum while they wait in line. I do it silently, you know. Uh, so what I'm going to ask you to do is to think of a song, okay? And um, when I tell you to begin, I want you to hum that first verse to, you, to yourself silently. And when you stop, you know, did you get to the end of the first verse? Say stop. Now, I've got five numbers. They're, they're playing cards, but it would be just like you're taking a number. You see that? So you've got five numbers. One through five. Now, I'm going to mix them up. And what I'd like you to do, I'll step back here so everyone can see, uh, is I go through the numbers, you... Begin humming, okay? When I tell you to start, then when you finish, say stop. And whatever number is on the face here, that's the number that will represent the bag of groceries that you'll select. Is that fair? Okay, here we go. Begin humming. Don't hold it in, son. You get a hernia that way. Right here? That's where you want to stop? All right, you stopped on number what? Can you see that? Number three. Okay. So, what I would like you to do is take that paper ball, all right, and toss it to somebody. Wait, no, 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 no. Don't get rid of that. What are you doing? All right. I, got a, I have a grocery list, okay? I should have sh- it's the only grocery list up here. Just so you know that I don't have more than one grocery list. I should have shown you this first. I got a grocery list, okay? Uh, and we're going to come back to this list in a minute. You'll see why in a moment. Because I, what I want you to do is toss that paper ball to uh, someone over here. Let's get another female participant, all right? Somebody have it? Quickly stand. All right. Right there. What I'd like you to do... Uh, what I'd like you to do is to call out a number between 
1 and 9. Or 1 and 10. I'm sorry? The number 8. Do you want to change your mind? You're positive. Okay, you can take a seat. Would you join me up here, please? Yeah, come on up here. All right, come on up here. And what I'd like you to do, step over here. Right over here, to my left. I want you to take the list, take a look at it. You got it? And I want you to look over the list and... I'll get this mic here. I want you to call out the, there's a number of items on the list. If you'll uh, tell us what the items are. Cream, butter, eggs, celery, lettuce, cheese, ice, lemon juice, and milk. Okay. What was the number that was chosen again? Was it eight? Okay. What's the eighth item on the list? Lemon juice. Lemon juice. Do you see lemon juice anywhere else on the list? No. No, right? You chose which bag? Bag number three. And bag number one, is there anything? Bag number one. Bag number two. Is there anything? No. Bag number four. There's nothing. Bag number five. Is there anything? And there's, of course, nothing in bag number three. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, I'll go ahead and show them what's in bag number three. Now, step up here. These things are kind of weird. These these water pumps back home. (laughs) Your name is, again, Joy. Joy. It's an amazing memory you have, Joy. That's good. Thank you. Uh, When magicians, can you all see or should we step back here? We'll step back. Come on, we'll go back here. A little traveling music, Sam. Okay, would you grab the other end of the table, do a little impromptu choreography? There you go. We will levitate it later this evening, but you haven't paid for that, so uh, we'll just do the manual move. Just teasing, just teasing. Look, when a magician takes a deck of cards out of the case, what's the first thing you expect them to do with the cards, Joy? Shuffle, shuffle them, right? You, shuffle, you ask them to shuffle them because you don't trust them, right? But you know the one thing most people don't suspect, Joy, is that I'm really just holding one card and a block of plastic. Am I right? Mm-hmm. All right, so I didn't vanish the Statue of Liberty, but uh... <laughs> you have that deck? I'll give you the deck. Here's the deck. <clears throat> have another deck of cards that's red. Take it out. Make sure all the cards are different. Are they all different? They at least look like it, right? Now I'm going to ask you to step over here to my right. Right on the trap door in case anything goes wrong, okay? <laughs> Behave yourself. Now, as I go through the cards like this, I want you to say stop at any time. All right? Say stop at any time. Stop. You got it? Mm-hmm. Now, let's also actually go looking through the cards. There'll be no way I could know what your card is. Right. Am I right? So just so you don't forget it, just keep saying four hearts, four hearts, four hearts, four hearts, four hearts. Was that it? Yeah. That was it? Huh? You think I just got lucky? You don't know? All right. Let's see. 
throw a net like that so everyone can hear. Should we try it one more time? All right, one last one. Say stop anytime. You got it? Now, if I told you I could cause your car to leap out of the center of the deck to four summer circles and land on my left hand, would you say, that's incredible? Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> this is not a pop quiz with multiple choice. <laughs> on the count of three, you got to yell it in the mic so they can hear it real loud. One, two, three, name your card. Four hearts. Oh, four hearts. Now, see, so you waited too long. We'll do that again. <laughs> Should we do it again? Sure. All right. Say stop anytime. Okay. Stop. Right there. Now, if I told you I could cause the car to leap out of the center of the deck to force some circle in my left hand, would you say that's incredible? The immediate answer is? Sure. Yes. On the count of three, name your card. One, two, three. Seven of clubs. Seven of clubs. Come on. Catch this thing of things. Seven of spades, wasn't spades. it? Spades. Spades, right. There it is. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Tonight, we're going to pre-scan those who come up on the platform to assist me. <laughs> no, Joy, that's, that's great. Magic, it's incredible. Part of that was idiotic, too. Huh? I love magic <clears throat> because it's fun, it's entertaining. Uh, those of you who have been in some of the classes, you'll know that that's a good deception Although it might have been poorly executed the first time, it is a good deception, not a bad deception. Uh, one of the professors asked me to share, I shared the story uh, a couple of years ago in a couple of the classes, they asked me to share it again. When I was in college, I went to Tulane University down in New Orleans. I had a bunch of buddies. I had just started learning the card stuff, you know, and I got kind of cocky, you know, to be honest with you. Uh, there's different sorts of things you can do with the deck, different exotic cuts, uh, the, one of the world's leading card men, John Rockabomber, that's his real name. Uh, he was the one who kind of got me into the real good card magic. So he taught me the Jewish cut, which the cards pass over. See, those of you over here. Jewish cut, the cards. You want a comedian? Get a comedian up here. I mean, this is the best I can do, all right? Uh, roller coaster shuffle. Looks like this. Kind of an interesting thing like that. Roller coaster cut. See roller coaster. Can you see that over here? See roller coaster cut. Roller coaster cut. The cards are glued together. That's the reason it works. It's really no big deal. <laughs> uh, I'm teasing. So, <clears throat> I, I, John and I used to talk about how are people deceived. See, as a boy, I started doing magic. You know, when I was nine, went on the Buddy Farnan Fun Time Show when I was uh, 13 years old. Big time now. 8:30 Saturday morning. It's pre-tape Friday afternoon. Matter of fact, it's a funny story. I uh, had a trick called the multiplying billiard ball tricks. Any of you amateur magicians out there? Anybody? You know the trick where you hold a ball in your hand, you go like that, it changes to two, and then three, and then four? I saw a guy do this on the Ed Sullivan show. You know, one of those prehistoric shows that they used to have, entertainment shows. And this guy had a... I don't, I don't smoke or anything, but I was willing to puff on a cigar just to do this. He would take a, a ball and hold it in his hand like this, and he'd take a little puff on his cigar and go... And then as the smoke passed in front of his hand, a second ball appeared. I thought, man, that is neat. You know, and he produced four balls that way, and then he made them disappear. So I decided when I was nine that I'm going to learn that trick. So I went to a magic shop, and it's a very difficult trick, isn't it? It's not an easy trick to learn. Well, I worked out a, um, a new wrinkle on it. I would hold the four balls in my hand, and I would go like that, and three would disappear simultaneously. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. 
And uh, you know the little piece of business that's used in it. There's only one of them used. Sorry, we can't let the rest of you in on that, but he was really wondering what I was talking about. So <clears throat> I went on the Buddy Farnan Fun Time show, and I'm on the show. And Buddy told me, don't do that trick. He says, you're going to get nervous. You'll be afraid. You know, fear might, you know, get a hold of you because of the lights, and you've never been on television before, and you might sweat and drop a ball. I said, nah, it's not going to happen to me. So I went ahead and... I was, on, I was wearing this funky-looking Merlin the Magician costume, you know, with the big, tall cone hat. And uh, you see, I literally had a chin strap on the thing because I would take my bow and the thing would fall off. And if you were too close to the front row, it would kill somebody in the front row. So I'm on, I'm on the show and I produce the first ball, the second ball, the third ball, and the fourth ball. And then I go like, I go like this. Boom. The three balls disappeared. But just like he said, I, got, I was a little afraid and I tensed up. And I sweated, and the ball flew out of my hand and went off the set. I thought, oh, man, I blew it. But I didn't, you know, betray that I was upset, so I just turned to the camera and took a bow. Well, we watched the videotape. See, it's videotape. So we're watching it Saturday morning. And the way they framed the picture, the picture ended here, you know, right where the fingertips were. So when it went like this and the ball flew off the set, you couldn't see it fly off the set. It looked like all four balls disappeared simultaneously. <laughs> Here's the best part. I got calls. Here, I'm 13 years old. I get calls from magicians from all over the state trying to figure out, how did you make those four balls disappear? Man, I worked years on that thing. I can't tip that and give it away. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I continue to invent tricks. This was in Chicago. I was born... Atlanta, I was in high school, and that's where I went on this television show. Went to school at Tulane down in New Orleans. That's where Rocket Bomber and I met. And if you go to a magic shop and you say, who is one of the best carb men in the world, uh, John Rocket Bomber's name will always be brought up. And he and I wrote a number of best-selling books for magicians uh, with the difficult sleight-of-hand card stuff and all that sort of business. Well, John and I were talking, and I said, you know, given the right circumstances, I believe you could take almost anybody and convince them you're from another planet. He says, I did that once. I said, really? And so I, I listened to how he did it. I said, well, I'm going to try that. That sounds neat. So um, I was playing tennis one day, and I got in some conversation with some buddies on the court. And I said, you know, I think I've learned enough tricks, certain types of tricks that are difficult enough and baffling enough that given the right circumstances, I could convince somebody else from Pluto. Well, they thought I'm, I'm being cocky. Well, I was a little bit cocky, but we uh, went down to the Ratskeller, which is the pizza place on campus, right? And I, I'm wearing tennis shorts, you know, and the T-shirt business and Got my tennis racket in hand. So I don't look like a magician. And uh, <clears throat> I go and buy a little pizza and then a bowl of olives. You know, the big jumbo kind with the pits? So I, I find a guy sitting by, sitting by himself. We picked him out at random. And the, and the bet was that if we went ahead and uh, I could convince this guy that I'm from Pluto, I get a steak dinner. That was the deal. So I said, by the way, do you mind if I join you? He said, sure. So I take my napkin, place it across my hand. Like that, and there was a glass of ice water. I sat it down. The guy kind of looked, and it didn't compute. So, but I didn't say anything. I just continued the conversation. So I sat down, and I pick up an olive. I put it in my hand. I go like this a couple times. I say, "Boy, that was good." I put the pit down. Picked up another olive. <laughs> like that. Theologically, we call these miracles of the street. See, then. Uh, I, I went like this, and the fork levitated into my hand. By the third time, this guy was getting ticked. He said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, this weird stuff you're doing. Eh, it's nothing, you know. Where are you, where are you from? Who are you dating? You know, who's your professor? 
<clears throat> Every time he'd ask me a question, I'd deflect him. See, I'd deflect him. And I wouldn't come back and say, well, I have a power. You don't do that. You always back off like this is nothing, you know, what, you've never seen this before? Is there something, are you brain damaged? Is there something, you have a problem here? By the time we got through with this guy, he had a receding hairline that was almost to the back of his neck. So finally he says, what are you doing? And I said, if I told you, you'll, you'll laugh at me. He says, I won't. I said, I'm from Pluto. He said, no. I said, I told you you wouldn't believe me. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I have my powers beamed down to me, and that's how I can do these things. It took me three weeks to track this guy down to convince him that I was not from Pluto. <laughs> if he saw me coming across campus, he went around buildings to avoid me. He was scared. He didn't have any, he didn't any framework to put this thing. It's true. It's a true story. You can convince people. You know this little thing with the grocery bag? You know, that's one thing. But it's another thing if you uh, walk up to Nancy Reagan, whose husband is all, was nearly murdered, and you can walk up to Nancy Reagan and you can tell her an intimate piece of information about her background that she believes no one else knew except her, and convince her that maybe there is such a thing as psychic gifts, so much so that she would actually take advice from an individual that would affect the president's calendar. That's how that thing worked. She went to Joan Quigley, you know, the astrologer, you know, from San Francisco. When I was writing my book, Powers, this was in 1988. It was being published in 1988, the summer of 88. Don Regan broke that story in his book, you know, for the record. Then Nancy Reagan came back and came out with her book, My Turn, you know, as a thing going, you know what I'm talking about, right? And he talked about how this, this uh, astrologer, you know, who does the horoscope charts, had literally affected the president's calendar in certain decisions that were made. You ready for this? That's only one of many stories. Senator Claiborne Pell, head of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, senator from Rhode Island, one of the most prominent senators in the U.S., took a psychic, who I'll talk to you about tonight, Yuri Geller, to the INF Treaty to assist in the uh, negotiations on nuclear arms. That stinks. 25% of the Congress, according to Charlie Rose, Democrat from South Carolina, guy in the House of Representatives. This is not somebody on the outside. It's the guy on the inside. He estimated that 25% of the Congress at different times go to see psychics. Jim Wright, former Speaker of the House. Do you know why these people go to see psychics? Because they can do something that without a doubt looks like it's a real power, like I did to that guy back on the campus. And it sounds funny, at least that was, it was a funny story. Actually, it was, a, it was a great story. You know, I enjoyed it thoroughly when I was going through the process. But I let the guy off the hook. These other folks don't do that. They would like to keep you and I on the hook. In 1981, I made a career shift. You know, up until that point, I was a professional magician. I had a real keen interest in this subject matter. I did not know if the brain actually had the capacity, the capability to predict the future. You know, if God created the brain to do that, or maybe to move objects without touching it, or read somebody else's mind, you know, like a book. I didn't know if that existed or not. When I was in college, I used to appear on talk shows. When I was at Tulane with famous psychics from all over the world, they had me on as a person who knew deception, but as a person who was willing to openly consider the possibility of human psychic abilities, ESP. I'm not talking about supernatural powers now. After being on 
that show and a couple of others over a period of two years, numerous times. And I got to watch many, at that time, of the best alleged psychics. Never having seen a genuine psychic, they were either deluded, in other words, when they, had, they were just a sick person, or they were self-deceived, they misreported something, or they were outright conning, them, conning folks. Then I came to the conclusion that the brain probably doesn't have that ability. Because when I checked the scientific record, science has not been able to establish one person on the planet in over 50, 60 years of testing who actually has some sort of a human psychic ability. We've never found that. Then I started looking at the significance of that. Jim Jones, Charles Manson, did you know that they formed their cult bases by fraudulently claiming to have powers? And because they could convince people that they had powers, then people would listen to their rap. Yuri Geller, the Israeli psychic, you'll see tonight. There's a trick that I'll do that I'll expose. And I'll explain. Matter of fact, I will explain two or three of the tricks tonight. I won't explain all of them, but I will explain some. So you'll have some street smarts. Because he could do a demonstration that appeared to be a power, then Claiborne Pell was willing to listen to his rap about his philosophy on life and why he believed he had these powers, which he basically just made up. He just made it up. He used to go to college campuses, Gellerwood. Matter of fact, Typically, an audience like this, here I'm being up front, I'm telling you it's going to be tricks. Typically, I go to a campus, like I was at Dartmouth, and they had about four, 500 students, you know, in the auditorium. I didn't tell them that it was tricks. I did the demonstrations. 60, 70% believed I had a power until I told them it was, it was a trick. Go to Ohio State, same thing. University of Alabama, same thing. It doesn't make any difference where you go in the country. This is just how people respond when they see these things. So I realized the power that you could have over somebody if you could convince them. Then you could get them to buy a philosophy. It will, as we'll talk about tonight, you know this New Age movement? The New Age movement would die tomorrow, tomorrow, if you wiped out the claims of powers. Like people claim it can walk across coals. Flaming coals, yeah. Heated up to 1,500, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit without burning. I did a, a, a little... Um, Survey, a Dallas Theological Survey, a Dallas Theological Seminary. And, you know, in Dallas? <laughs> Just thought I'd explain that. Some of you guys are taking notes. You look bewildered. And I asked the profs there. This is an informal survey, a bunch of the profs. Do you think firewalking is natural or supernatural? They said supernatural, most of them. I mean, in fact, nobody said it was natural. There's a natural explanation for it. You expose that, and then the guys doing these firewalking conferences... One guy who I exposed has led over 150,000 professionals. He's worked for uh, McDonnell Douglas. Had a contract with the U.S. Army. You remove his, his fraudulent claims of power, and nobody's going to listen to his theories. Does that make sense? I interviewed a woman yesterday. I do a lot of interviews. As a matter of fact, that's the reason I came out early. I had a bunch of interviews I had to do related to a book that I'm doing on miraculous claims of healing. And I'm doing a special on that at the same time. Last time I was here at Masters, I met a woman. She came to a, um, the evening program. It turned out she had gone to this firewalker that I had exposed. Anthony Robbins wrote the best-selling book, Unlimited Power. But you know what was also interesting? She lived and traveled with Shirley MacLaine off and on for the four years when she first got involved in all this stuff. Matter of fact, a friend of mine, he wrote me a report. He's from Berkeley. And he wrote me a report. He's with the Spiritual Counterfeits Project. It's a Christian think tank that does outstanding research on cultic and deceptive trends in the culture. And there's sort of a, a think tank where if, you, if you're a cop or a journalist and you need 
some good, accurate information, you call the Spiritual Counterfeits Project. He sends me, uh, oh, it's, it's like a letter, letter form, but it's about five or six pages on what he believed would happen once Shirley MacLaine's special aired out on a limb. Her book had already been out about a year. He said, people are going to go nuts over this. I said, you're crazy. Yeah, people are going to start going to spirit channelers where they believe a spirit can talk through them. I said, that's nuts. I said, Houdini exposed that stuff around the turn of the century. Did you know that? Houdini wanted to get in touch with his mother after she died. So he started going to see all the leading famous mediums all over the world, and he found out they were all phonies using tricks and whatnot and deceptions and verbal deceptions, and he exposed them all. And that movement died out as a direct result of Houdini's work. I said, there's no way today in this modern culture, high-tech society, that people are going to fall for that again. Boy, was I wrong. That special aired, boom, look how many people have gotten involved in this stuff. Mundane explanation. Why did Shirley MacLaine fall for that? There was a con man, who she refers to as David. This woman I'm talking to, I'm interviewing, traveled with him. That's how she met Shirley MacLaine. When Shirley MacLaine was filming her movie, being there, you know, this quasi-mystical sort of movie, Peter Sellers movie, that's when she got into this stuff. And this guy was the one who introduced it to her. And he was a con man. He was an actual con man. She, she said that uh, he raped a 13-year-old girl, that when they used to stay in somebody's house who was wealthy, he'd rip off a necklace or whatever. And she said he was a super manipulator. She's a super manipulator. And he used to do a thing where he'd close his eyes and he could drive the car. I have a friend of mine, his name is Kuda Bucks. He'd do better than that. He's from Pakistan. He's now deceased. He used to wrap his head in bandages. And he could drive a car down the middle of the street. I mean, dough over his eyes, tape, silver dollars, gauze. I mean, unbelievable. He I learned how to do it. I did it when I was 15 years old. I could have it all wrapped up and I put my hands on a newspaper and read the newspaper. We had a joke. If something was lost at the Magic Castle, you know, here in Los Angeles, uh, and Kuda was around, we say, hey, Kuda, come and help us. He says, I can't until I get my blindfold. Forget it. <laughs> but that's how simple a lot of these things are. Amityville Horror. You remember that thing, the haunted house case? Remember that? So it was a true story up in New York, up, uh, New York State. I, went, I, I was getting all kinds of calls from Christians right after the book came out. I did a bunch of study from the scriptures. I came to the conclusion that ghosts don't exist. But I wanted to still check out the story. I checked it out. You know what I found out? There was a lawsuit raging because the author had sat down with a couple, and over uh, a glass of wine, they decided to make up the story. That's how simple it was. I'm in Ohio. I'm at a university. A fellow comes up to me. I have a haunted house, Dan. Really? I've wanted to find the f a real haunted house. Matter of fact, I find one, I'm going to report it. Because that's significant, isn't it? I mean, if that really happened, I'm not afraid of finding out if this stuff is real or not. I don't carry an axe to grind. I don't care if God created us with the power or not. If he did, fine. If he didn't, that's okay, too. It doesn't make any difference to me. Personally, I'm kind of thankful he didn't. Can you imagine the havoc we could create if we could read each other's thoughts? You'd never have any privacy. That would drive us nuts, wouldn't it? drive you crazy. So I go to his house. He tells me this, this cold type thing would just kind of brush past him every now and then in the bathroom. And he couldn't find a draft or anything like that. So I knew immediately what to do. I went downstairs. I said, show me your basement. 
And sure enough, there was a duct from the basement where it gets real cold. Then on a certain day when there was a gust of air that would push through, it would push it up through this vent and it would give the appearance through a crack in the wall because there was an opening in this particular vent so more air could gush through. And it would feel like it was brushing right past you. I made him stand there. Fortunately, the wind was blowing that day. Most of these things, that's how simple the explanation is. When you go out and you have to expose these kinds of things, the reason I expose them is not to prove that somebody's been taken or that psychic powers don't exist. Uh, this morning, the Tampa Tribune interviewed me. About an hour, I'm going to be there this weekend. Why? Uh, there are a bunch of uh, high school students, a very significant number, that are into Satanism. And they believe that one of the groups might be tied to a group of adults who are committing some felony crimes, murders and that sort of thing. And this stuff really does happen. The number of felony crimes, murders and whatnot, it's not as great as people think it is, but as far as teenagers getting involved with Satanism, it's, it's unbelievable. That thing is just kind of sweeping across the country. One of the things I'll address in real detail tonight, I mean, why that's happening, why that's going on. So I'm talking to this reporter basically to figure out, is this really as significant as this church has told me it is? Because a reporter... Uh, particularly one who's not a Christian, even though she's the religion editor. She is. I mean, I could, you know, when I was talking, she's going to be objective. You know what I mean? She's, she wants cold, hard facts. Is there a body count? And she says, yeah, there really is some stuff going on in the area. In a number of these groups, somebody claims that they have some sort of a power. And most of these, a lot of these kids, kind of a precursor, forerunner to this is like the Ouija board, Dungeons and Dragons, and that sort of thing. Because it gets them in their head thinking maybe they can have a power to overcome something. And that's what's really important. People are looking to control something. I did this thing with the grocery list. Yeah, that's a trick. It's fun. You know, it'd be nice to think maybe you could control your grocery bill. Ours is going out of sight. I got three kids, 13, 9, and 7. Nine-year-old, he's like a horse. The guys, unbelievable. I mean, he goes through it. It'd be nice to be able to control that, but we don't have absolute and complete control. Now, I want to share with you one concept that I want you to carry with you throughout your life. I was talking with a student here who was a drug enforcement officer, and he was in a class that I was lecturing in just before this, right before chapel. And I shared this one concept, and bam, he said it hit him hard, and he really focused on it. He says, that's something I need to really think about when I'm out on the street. You need to think about this when you're out on the street. It's what you can do with fear and as it relates to self-deception. Now, when I say that, it's like if I said, you know, we are manipulated by fear and emotions. Most of us are going to do what? Yeah, sure. But do you really understand what that means? Not unless you've really had experience with that. And I would, uh, personally, I'd be frustrated. I'd try and explain a concept that I was seeing uh, being used in the culture, and I'd have no way of communicating that unless I actually had a piece of film footage. And I do shoot film footage, like for that healing special, I've exposed on camera a number of famous faith healers, in other words, and how they operate, and uh, the different methods and techniques you know that they use. You know, that's something else I'll talk about tonight. So I can have a piece of footage maybe to show you, but what about when I don't have a piece of footage? What am I going to do? So I, 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 the best way I found is to do what Jesus did. What did he do? He told stories. A friend of mine said God had a son. He made him a preacher who told stories. So I wanted to come up with a story. Okay, what's a good story? Here's the story. I've been writing a book for the last 
oh, five or six years, off and on, in my leisure. It's called The Magician Talks to Screwtape. And it's about the world's leading magician, Clearwater. In each chapter, he gets together with Screwtape, and the deal is this. Screwtape sits in the audience, like you're sitting in the audience, and he watches a trick that Clearwater presents. Then the two of them get together for coffee afterwards at a local diner, and they discuss, number one, the modus operandi. What did the magician do to pull off the trick? What was the sleight of hand or the mechanical thing that he did? Second, what was the psychological principle he used to short-circuit the thinking of his audience? You know, when I was up here and I did that thing with the deck of cards where I took it out and it changed to a block of plastic, that was a, that instead of a visual deception, I fooled you psychologically. I set you up. I didn't say, I take out an ordinary deck of cards. What did I say? What do you expect a magician to do when he takes out a deck of cards? And she said, shuffle him. So silently, I made you accept the fact that that's a deck of cards. Psychologically, I defeated you. That's why that worked. And then finally, Screwtape explains how he uses the same principle out on the street. So this is the finale to the book. Clearwater has this huge, nine-foot-tall, canvas-covered prop, musty canvas-covered prop, wheeled out the center stage. It goes like this, and it's lifted, and in its place is the Maiden of Death, a nine-foot-tall French guillotine. You can tell it's real because it's not the kind that has, you know, the chrome-plated blade, you know, like you see with the Chinese dragon and all that stuff. This one's, the bolts are crusted, the blade's stained, the wood's kind of cracked, the chain's kind of uh, deteriorating, rusted. He said, in the 1700s, over 1,500 people were married to this machine of death. Monsieur Guillotine, this is a true story, was asked to create a more humane means of carrying out an execution. So he thought of an immediate severing of the head. So at first he designed a blade that was horizontal. But he found that after two or three executions, if more than one had to be carried out in the same day, the blade might become dull and occasionally would stick in the middle of the neck. So to overcome this, he decided to adopt another design. He was watching the local butcher chop beef. And he noticed that he did it on a diagonal. He held his hands at the tip and he went like this. So then he came up with the diagonal design. He says, now let me illustrate for you the effectiveness of this killing machine. And he begins to pull on the chain that goes through a gearbox that sounds like somebody's raking their nails down a chalkboard. As it gets to the top, they hear a little ping. It's a little one-inch pin, he says. That little one-inch pin is what would hold it in place. But during the frenetic days of the Revolution, occasionally that would wear down to a nub. And while the prisoner was being locked into place, the blade would be prematurely released, released severing the head in half. He says, but tonight there is a freshly installed pin, so you don't have to worry. He takes a head of cabbage, places it in the head hole. He says, now, looking across the dark, and he pulls on the chain, the blade comes screaming down, cuts the cabbage in half. Stepping up to the footlights, he looks at his audience, and he says, now I'd like to borrow a volunteer from the audience. 
He selects a distinguished gentleman, pinstripe suit, graying at the temples, obviously the banker of the town. As he stands up, you can tell there's a hesitation, but he doesn't want to show that he's afraid because obviously it's just a magician's trick. And he steps forward. Clearwater takes out a red velvet pillow, places it behind the guillotine. He asks the dignified man to kneel. As he begins to lock the head in place, he says, by the way, you will notice there's a head hole, a hole above and below the head hole. He said those two holes were used for a particularly defiant prisoner. They would lock the wrists in place, so not only would the prisoner be further mutilated, but because of the positioning and the turning of the head like this, out of the corner of their eye, they would see life's final moment approach. He says, but tonight, I'm going to use it for a different purpose. And he places a carrot in each of the holes. He says, watch. And he pulls on the chain as it grinds through the gearbox, which sounds like somebody raking their nails down a chalkboard. It gets to the top. Ping! He says, now! He looks at the banker. Two cleave carrots in place, laying on the floor. Are you okay, sir? Releases him from the headstock, sends him back to his seat, receives a standing ovation. He looks then across at his audience for one final moment. He says, my prayer for you is this, is that you will never be ultimately deceived in life, but be led by the creator of our universe. Curtain. He changes Meet screw tape at the diner. Drinking coffee, sweet roll. Screw tape says, uh, that was your best deception. He says, I know. How do you think I did it? See, he already has to give away the secret, but the worst thing that a magician wants, the last thing he wants to do is to give away a secret. It's like taking a part of yourself and ripping it out. So he'd always start, well, how do you think it was done? Screwtape coily would say, well, I don't think it was the mechanical device. And realizing that Screwtape might have an understanding, he said, that's right. It wasn't the fact that one blade came up and down so fast that it created the illusion that it went around the head. So how do you think I fooled them, Screwtape? He said, you deceived them with fear. He says, that's right. I had that prop made but I had it made exactly like a model that's in a French museum. I even took the bolts and lacquered them, put them in the oven, and baked them so they become crusted to give it an old appearance. Got a stained piece of stainless steel. And I told the story, and that really was the story of how the blade was invented. So not only does my audience not want to know how the trick is done, they just want it to be over with. Clearwater says, I've seen you use the same principle out on the street. He says, that's right. Most people think that our goal is to replace love with hatred. Our goal is to replace love with fear because fear paralyzes its victim. And then Clearwater says, I guess that's the why 
the Apostle John said that it is perfect love that casts out fear. And as he said that, screw tape shivered. When I go out on the street and I'm put in a bad situation, before I walk out on the street, I better know why I'm there. If I think I'm there just to try and show some guys a phony or just to try and get a good story, you put enough pressure on me and you will instill fear in me and somebody's going to get hurt. Student here and I were just chatting before the program. Just this past week, he told me he got into one of those situations. You better know why you're out there. Things come at you in life that make you afraid, that make you uncertain. If you don't know why you're walking this planet, I will find a way to put enough fear in you if I wanted to do that so I could shut you down. And you could be not only deceived, but self-deceived. And one fellow said, the very best deception is where you exert just enough influence so the victim deceives themselves. Do you know why John said that thing about perfect love casts out fear? Because the love of Jesus Christ cannot live side by side next to paralytic fear. Not the kind of fear, we're not talking about the type of fear like, if you do wrong, you're going to be punished. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about paralytic fear that shuts you down for the wrong reason. That's the reason when Jesus knew what was going to happen when He went on the cross. It was not a light statement when Paul said He did that because of the glory set before Him. All of the evil moments of the Holocaust were compressed into that one moment when Jesus was on the cross. He knew He was going to soak that into Him. He sweat blood the night before. The pressure was unbelievable. You and I will never have to face that kind of pressure. But there are other pressures I watch daily that shut down Christians. Why? Because the perfect love of Jesus Christ is not the center of their life. That's not the reason they're out there and walking the street. That's what I want to leave you with.